Hey everybody, I'm Tim Whitaker, along with Rob McMichael and Jordan Renault. This is our podcast, Coffee, Theology, and Jesus. Our purpose for this podcast is to discuss this messy, difficult, and amazing thing we call the Christian faith. As Christians, we are encouraged and challenged constantly to see what the Bible teaches us about who Jesus was and how he lived and how we can better represent his message every day. Join us each episode as we explore how this relationship with Jesus affects everything from politics and religion to relationships and theology. Now that you know a little more about us, let's get into this week's episode. Welcome, everyone, to the Coffee, Theology, and Jesus podcast. We have another great interview for you today. So I'm sure you guys can tell we've kind of changed the format up a little bit. Rob, Jordan, and myself have been all very busy. And as we want to continue to grow the podcast, we decided that having guests on and interviewing them is one of the best ways to do that. So I hope you guys are enjoying these interviews. We'd love to know what you think. You can always shoot us a message or an email at podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com. But it would be great to get some feedback from you because our goal is to bring you people who are all committed Christians but have different perspectives of the Christian faith. On today's show, I had the chance to interview Dr. David Gushy. Dr. David Gushy has a very long list of credits to his name. I want to read some of these off to you. He is the Distinguished University Professor of Christian Ethics at Mercer University. He is also the director of the Center for the- uh, Theology and Public Life at Mercer University. He is the past president of the American Academy of Religion and so- Society of Christian Ethics. He has written and edited over 26 different books. His most recent book is called After Evangelicalism, and it is uh, a book about him uh, leaving that title and moving on uh, to a life beyond that 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 bubble uh, um, in the Christian faith. And he also wrote a book in 2014 called Changing Our Minds, which is an argument for LGBTQ inclusion. Now, some of you might have red flags going up. Here's what I'm going to ask you to do. Listen to the interview and let him speak, because I think this conversation, especially with the LGBTQ um, issue needs to be brought up and we have to have critical conversations around it. You might not agree or you might agree and that's okay. The point of our podcast is to get perspectives in front of you that maybe you have not heard before. So I hope you guys enjoyed this podcast. One more thing. Don't forget guys, we have an, um, an Instagram at CTJ podcast and you can always drop us a line um, on there or uh, on our email podcast at coffee, theology, and Jesus.com. Don't forget to give us a rating and check out this interview. David, thank you so much for coming on the Coffee Theology and Jesus podcast. It is great to have you on. Well, any chance I have to do Coffee Theology and Jesus and, you know, all at once is awesome, man. So, yeah, (laughs) thanks. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for the invitation. Absolutely. So I'll tell our listeners, I, I discovered you from an article I wrote, um, I wrote, yeah, you wrote, um, that someone shared uh, why Trump's electoral crisis is really a moral crisis. And I, it was really well written. So I asked you to come on and, you know, I was doing some digging on you, reading some of your other, your other works and your books. Why don't you kind of give us the big picture overview of who you are, where your journey has led you to where you are now? Sure. Um, well, I'll be as concrete as possible. Today, I am sitting in my basement in Atlanta, Georgia, uh, where I teach at Mercer University, um, uh, which is based in all over the state of Georgia, but Macon, Atlanta, Savannah. Um, I'm a, in Macon, I teach college students. Um, and in Atlanta, I teach seminary students. Um, so my denomination is Baptist. Uh, I was raised Catholic. 
uh, I've been a professor of Christian ethics for 30 years or so and have written or edited 26 books. Um, and so I'm happy to talk about uh, any of them that I can remember <laughs> that are worthy of being remembered. <laughs> sure. uh, so, um, so yeah, I'm probably most known recently for um, a series of books in which I uh, kind of gradually renounce the evangelical label and propose a post-evangelical path. And also for my work on LGBT inclusion and just earlier, People would have known me for a, a big ethics intro textbook called Kingdom Ethics that's used in a lot of places. And um, I've been an activist on issues like um, uh, against uh, torture when the US was torturing people after 9-11. I was a leader on that and um, uh, on, for climate change, uh, you know, mitigation and, and now LGBT inclusion. So those are some things that I've worked on. Well, let's uh, let's start off with this idea of you mentioned that you kind of moved away from the evangelical label and kind of embraced this post-evangelical idea. I, I do feel like there is this movement. You know, I'm 32. I'm kind of in the smack dab of the millennial movement. And a lot of people that I know have either kind of found themselves in the in the same place of, of realizing that the evangelical identity is just it's not working. It's not it's not inclusive enough. And they've either tended to walk away or they have said, I got to go deeper in my faith. So can you speak a little bit about that? Like what has that been for you and, and what are you seeing? Yeah. Um, I'm waving my book at you now called After Evangelicalism, which, Perfect. which is uh, just out in August. And um, okay, so here's, here's what I would say. Um, I didn't even know I was an evangelical until I kind of adopted the label uh, in 1990 or thereabouts, I was a born again Southern Baptist at first. Mm. Born again was the language in the 70s. You don't hear that much anymore, right? Oh, he's right. born again. You know, it's like, what is that? Um, and then in the 90s, I got to know and work with a guy named Ron Sider. He's he's 80 years old now. A lot of people don't know him anymore, but he wrote mm. Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. He led Evangelicals for Social Action. He was based in Philly. And, and he articulated and helped to communicate what I would call a kind of a, a peace and justice evangelicalism. He was like a precursor to Shane Claiborne. I love Shane. Right. In fact, he was one of the people who influenced Shane Claiborne um, in Philly, right? He and uh, oh, okay. you know, Tony Campolo and oh, yeah. the world, right? We just interviewed Chris Hall, who co-wrote um, Jesus for President with Shane Claiborne. That's right. Right. So that that's next generation, right? Mm -hmm. um, so for a while... For a long while, about 15 years, I thought, okay, I've got a secure identity. I'm a kind of left-leaning evangelical, theologically orthodox, Jesus-loving, spiritually serious, but I believe that Jesus means peace and justice, right? So that's familiar, right? Yeah. Um, and then I, <laughs> I attempted to live that out as a professional in the Southern Baptist world. Hmm. Um, and what I learned very quickly in the Southern Baptist world was so the, the new Southern Baptist, the conservative Southern Baptist, since the conservative resurgence or takeover of the denomination, mm. um, they were going to be evangelical, but they were not going to be that kind of evangelical. Yeah. Um, and so I, I, I rapidly found that I didn't really belong there. 
And so I moved, I moved uh, from Southern Baptist Seminary where I taught for three years, of working under Al Mohler, mm-hmm. and then 11 years at Union University in West Tennessee, which was still conservative, but had a little more breathing room, still Southern Baptist. Hmm. But then um, by 2007, it was pretty clear to me that peace and justice type folks in Southern Baptist, they were just not, there was not an overlap. The Venn diagram didn't work anymore. Um, and, you know, to be a Southern Baptist now involves a whole bunch of conservative political and social assumptions and commitments. And that's Jesus, that's Christianity, that's the whole package, including Trumpism yes. at this point, right? Mm-hmm. Um, although I wonder what that will look like, you know, when he finally exits. But anyway, that, that became uh, pretty un- unsustainable to me. But so by 2007, I'm clear, okay, so I can't be a Southern Baptist anymore. Okay. But then when I took on the LGBT issue um, and, and the main stalwarts of the evangelical world just kind of said, no, you can't do that. You can't think, you cannot think open in open ways about this issue and be an evangelical. And they said after 2014, when I wrote Changing Our Mind, they, they, you know, who is they? It's uh. It's the blogosphere, it's book publishers, it's yeah. people who invite you and disinvite you to speak places and stuff. They said, you can't take the inclusive posture and be an evangelical, you just can't. Hmm. Um, and I thought, I thought it, there might be openness for the conversation, but there wasn't. Yeah. So, so after 2014, I began asking myself, well, was I ever an evangelical? Hmm. Um, what does that term mean? Um, was I ever a Christian? Some people tell me I wasn't a Christian, so I better think about that too, right? Um, right. So I wrote a memoir called Still Christian, which came out in 2017, where I kind of explored my journey. And then just now I've written this new book called After Evangelicalism. And what I have concluded hmm. is that American evangelicalism was basically rebranded fundamentalism. Yes. And that it, they never successfully managed to broaden uh, their way of thinking theologically, um, and the conservative, reactionary social location of most of the white men that uh, have dominated American evangelicalism is really what sets the agenda of the the community. Yeah. And if you don't buy that or not a part of that, you end up on the outside looking in. Yeah. So what I do in the new book is basically say, oh, and by the way, I, I have met gazillions of disaffected post-evangelicals or ex-evangelicals, a lot of whom are dang angry and embittered. Others are just kind of confused and disoriented. The Trump thing was a big part of it, but it was happening before that too. Yep. So, in the, you know, so in the book, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to be a pastor really and think together with others what is our theology and ethics and hermeneutics and so on going to look like in a post-evangelical space? Well, that's what I do in that new book. Yeah, I mean, you, you really hit on so many things that you saw me nodding. And for our viewers who maybe aren't watching the stream, yeah, I was just, yes, 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 everything you're saying, because um, I found myself so much in that camp of like, okay, I'm because I take Jesus seriously and the Bible seriously, I find myself more and more at odds with this weird political allegiance to a particular party that says, if you don't vote or think this way, you're not a Christian. I mean, and that's not overstating the case. I've right. seen people either on my personal social media accounts or, you know, um, in the blogosphere make arguments that um, if you don't vote for Trump, you're voting 
for Satan. I mean, the, 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 the charismatic world in particular, I did a lot of watching of these so-called prophets who would literally say, this is a battle between God and the devil. And what they're saying is that if, you're, if you vote conservative, you're voting for God. And, 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 and if you do that, God will somehow restore America. And if you vote for a Democrat, you're voting for evil and for Satan. And that is, I, I, I don't know the full story of how we got here, but we are here. And frankly, I think it's heretical and it's extremely dangerous because we have, we have people growing up thinking that, that right-wing political allegiance and Jesus are one in the same. And I think that's really what helped get Trump to where he is. I mean, what would you say to that kind of idea? Like, how did we get here with this weird, this weird allegiance, you know, of right wing and Jesus, even though if you read the Sermon on the Mount, it's on, on face value with no digging. It's already antithetical to many conservative positions. Right. How did we get here? Um, I've written, I've puzzled over evangelicals and politics for 20 years. Um, I deal with it again in this new book. Um, and I've done some, some fresh reading on, and there's a lot of good historical work that's been done on this now. Hmm. Um, one way to tell the story is it really goes back to the birth of, of modern fundamentalism in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Hmm. Um, so that's 100 years ago. And what was happening was you had powerful voices um, claiming that Jesus means kingdom of God and kingdom of God and Sermon on the Mount and justice for the poor, concern for, for the suffering. And a, a major uh, focus of this interest had to do with early industrialization in the U.S. Yes. And the social gospel movement and uh, the working, the suffering working people in the miserable conditions that they lived in. And, and basically, social gospelers said the gospel has to address those concerns or it's not the gospel. Right. Um, is that a baby? Yeah, it's my little, I have a six-month-old. <laughs> ah, I love yeah. babies. Um, so, um, so, but fundamentalists on the whole responded by saying either we disagree with that politics, siding with the, with the industrial uh, uh, owner class, yep. or saying, a very, very common move, the gospel has nothing to do with politics. So don't even talk about it. The gospel is only about personal salvation. Hmm. So in the in the early fundamentalist modernist split, uh, and even in the, the social gospel before that, um, you had the emergence of a reactionary conservative politics on the, the group that became known as fundamentalists and then later became evangelicals. Hmm. And, then, and while there were exceptions, that kind of politics, anti-New Deal, anti-Social Security, anti-welfare, uh, anti um social safety net, um, anti-minimum wage, um, you know, uh, anti-peace movement, uh, all of that was pretty consistent all the way through uh, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. It got tied up into anti-communism during the, the Red Scare, you know, during yes. that. Period. And then in the 60s, when American culture had its big culture wars beginning then, the evangelicals went to the right again. Mm -hmm. And then in the 70s, you have the birth of the moral majority, Jerry Falwell, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. And then they explicitly married the Republican Party and basically said, um, to be a white evangelical is to be a Republican. And the thing is, that marriage, <laughs> that marriage has proved to be indissoluble. Um, uh, and no matter who the Republicans nominate, the marriage continues. And 
Now, Trump tested it because he was such a bad man and bad in his character and awful in his policies um, and, and so loosely connected to any concept of truth. Yep. Um, and, but the marriage held pretty much. So it's a hundred year thing, but you know what? The, the really the most, um, the most damaging critique would be that white evangelicalism or white male dominated evangelicalism has mainly been about being white and being male mm. and being socially conservative and against inclusive social change, period. Yeah. And that has been identified with the gospel. Yeah, yeah you're absolutely right. Um, yeah, it's uh, definitely been befuddling to me <laughs> to watch a president, even with this recent election fraud nonsense. I mean, to the point where you could look at one of his tweets, you could Google it, and in five minutes find out that he's not telling the truth. And the uh, many people in the evangelical world, and again, I go back to that, that I term used loosely prophetic world. No, no, God's going to do a miracle here. It's like, guys, like you're just, I don't know what, what world you're living in. It's just not reality. Um, it also seems like, too, because of how I would say successful that marriage has been in the eyes of so many people, once you start pushing against it, people label you all of the buzzwords. Oh, you're socialist, you're liberal, you're, 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 you don't take the Bible seriously, which is, I got to say, it's almost impressive how, how, how masterfully done that rhetoric has been um, implemented to, to convince people that if I push back against someone like Trump as a Christian, I'm suddenly labeled this far right, like AOC type. And it's like, whoa, 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 I'm not advocating for any of that. I'm just saying that this is not correct. That's really an amazing feat when you think about it. Uh, it is an amazing feat. Um, I remember in uh, this story in 2004, I was working in West Tennessee at this uh, Baptist university. And one of my colleagues had a John Kerry bumper sticker on his car. And he told me that a campus police officer actually uh, put a ticket under his windshield. Uh, it wasn't, he didn't charge him with an offense, but he wrote on the back of the ticket, basically, how dare you have a carry bumper sticker in this parking lot? Um, that's godless and you should know better. You know, because he had a faculty parking sticker and a carry bumper sticker. And so the police, the, the police officer was sure that this man needed to be rebuked. It is, a, it is an incredible achievement. I do think that there, that the, um, the abortion issue has played a big role in that. Um, abortion's complicated and, and I've identified as, as pro-life my whole career. Um, but, but that doesn't mean I think that abortion should be the only thing we think about when we're talking about American uh, public life. Totally. And so abortion has been very useful in, if you ratchet up the rhetoric around abortion, you can label everybody who's uh, not Republican, you can label them as of Satan or whatever. And by the way, part of what you're, what you're noting is there's a certain kind of rhetoric that comes from the Pentecostal charismatic part of the religious world that tends to be a little more wild than just kind of conservative like Calvinism, right? It's a little different. Yes. yes. The whole demonic powers and principalities, spirits, all that stuff, that, that language, that's one reason why that part of the Christian world has struggled to have a kind of a helpful po political posture because they're living in um, a very supernaturalized way of looking at the world. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think Trump gave them a lot of credit when they he brought in Paula White to the White House. You know, Bethel was really involved. So I think that was a big, actually, I hate to say it, but a good strategy, if you will, by Trump realizing that hey, if I can court 
this side because they have even though they're not like in the mainstream they have a very big underground following i mean their youtube videos have hundreds of thousands of views you know a lot of them make a lot of money obviously you have the kind of copens of the world so they're obviously tapping into a base and um yeah, yeah seeing trump do that you know is like wow it's it, seeing him bring in that kind of group into public public light has just been something else but um yeah yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. I do want to move a little bit more. So, you know, you, you have really great thoughts on the political side. I do want to talk about this LGBTQ issue because, um, you know, I, I, from, from your book, Changing Our Minds, it seems like it's about really making the case for including that people group into the church, which for a lot of people, and this crosses now a lot of different, you know, denominational stuff, that's like a big no-no right now in church culture. And I think that there's more talk about how do we have them be at least feel welcomed in our circles, but the idea of leadership or or affirming it, that that's a real big, like, we are not going to cross that. I've, I've had pastors tell me there is nothing to discuss here. Um, you know, the, the Bible's crystal clear. And I have been, you know, I'm not sure if you're familiar with um, um, Preston Sprinkle, uh -huh. um, yeah, you know, he has a great podcast, uh, Theology in the Raw. He talks a lot about this kind of stuff. But why don't you kind of give us your big picture overview journey of this issue, and then I'll ask you a few pointed questions about it. Sure, yeah. Um, I, you know, uh, my training is in Christian ethics, right? And so uh, I went to Union Seminary in New York, which is a very liberal school. Uh, while I was there, I really didn't reconsider what I would call a kind of a soft traditional perspective, you know, kind of kind and loving, but uh, non-inclusive in the sense of we're not moving to equal access to marriage or to church leadership, right? That was where I was um, until uh, after about 2012, 2013. Um, it's, so soft traditionalism, but certain things began to... Um, to trouble that settled, rather complacent perspective that I had, right? Mm -hmm. One was uh, getting to know um, gay ex-Christians who had been kicked out of churches and families, oftentimes with the most disastrous mistreatment and all kinds of mental health consequences. Mm -hmm. um, uh, one was getting to know gay and lesbian um, still practicing Christians um, who had found churches in which they could be accepted, um, including gradually the church that I was a part of and am a, a part of here in, in Atlanta. Um, one was my youngest sister came out at the age of 35. Mm. Um, so, and when I found out that one reason she had delayed so long was because I was a Southern Baptist pastor, that was, mm. that was relevant to know, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, having seminarians who were gay and lesbian uh, and who, um, who taught me a lot about their their stories so um intuitively this much pain this much alienation from christ and the church uh and of course on the fringes and not only on the fringes the hateful nature of christian rhetoric and the stuff you can see on youtube and um and uh the harm um like this was a group that conservatives felt free to bash and to blame all of society's problems on and yeah. uh, and to distance as if they were the ultimate other. I, I had always been troubled by that. Mm -hmm. um, so in 2014, I felt called, that's the only way to describe it, mm -hmm. to wrestle with these issues from the ground up. 
So I began a series of articles that became a book uh, that ended up being called Changing Our Mind, just from the beginning, like, okay, uh, you know, what do we know about uh, same-sex orientation? What, what's the state of that conversation? Right. What's the percentage of population? What are the psychologists saying? Um, what's the situation in the churches? Um, uh, what are the what about change? Is that possible? Just I examined everything, right? Right. Um, what about the scriptural passages? I looked at all the ones that were most commonly cited and did a chapter on each. Um, and um, I I concluded that those passages are not as definitive as they've been read to be, hmm. um, and that. There's not that many of them, um, and that the church has been wrong before, often when it has excluded and mistreated people. Mm-hmm. And, and so it's like, my, it began like, you know, like when you're doing combination locks, like one, <laughs> two, three, snap. And it was like, oh, you know what this is? I think this is not, um, we're holding on to we're holding on to scripture, but it is we've been holding on to a misreading of scripture that hurts people, mm. and this misreading of scripture should be abandoned because it hurts people, and because it isn't just that it hurts people and I feel emotional. It's because because there are principles in scripture itself, including in the way Jesus treated people, that ought to tell us a version of Christianity that harms in this way violates principles like justice and dignity and mercy and equality um, and love. It's unloving. It, it, it denigrates human worth and causes human suffering. Um, and, and as I searched for historical parallels, the two that struck me as most relevant were when Christians defended slavery on the basis of scripture, hmm. And when Christians defended an advanced anti-Semitism on the basis of scripture. And I had worked on that. I have a dissertation on the Holocaust. And so I know a lot about the history of anti-Semitism. So so I I concluded that this was a configuration of interpretive patterns that were more like the defense of slavery and the advancement of anti-Semitism than they were the proper interpretation of scripture. Hmm. And so... But in the book, I'm kind of working my way there, a, a verse at a time, a chapter at a time. And there's kind of a breakthrough. And literally, I experienced the breakthrough as I was writing the book. Wow. Because I didn't know how it was going to go. I just I was writing these articles, just asking God to illuminate me and show me one step at a time. Mm. And so in the end, I concluded that this is not fundamentally about sexual ethics, because my sexual ethic is marital and covenantal. Right. But it's about including everybody in that ethic instead of some people being excluded from it. Wow. Wow. I mean, that's and, powerful. So that's how that's where I ended up. The book has has gone all over the world. It's being translated into Chinese, uh, into into Swahili. Um, it's like literally, Tim. If I go, this happened to me. I had a speaking appearance in Australia, and it was announced. And a group in Australia said, would you come speak to our group too? I mean, there are uh, closeted and X and uncloseted LGBT people all over the world who have mm-hmm. told that the book has saved their sanity or saved their life. Wow. 
Um, I'm, I was looking for your, I'm a big audiobook guy. I didn't see it on audible yet, but I'm going to, I'm going to pick up a paperback copy. So I'm very interested in, in reading it myself. So, um, it, it, it I read a couple of reviews on it. I, I saw some of your videos on it and it was really helpful. So, you know, I don't know, as I'm kind of processing out loud here in the middle of this interview, I don't know why in my mind, if I read a verse that says slaves obey your masters, I can say, well, that's not what Paul's talking about. He doesn't really mean slavery. But if I read a verse that says, you know, um, that homosexuality, um, you know, uh, you know, and the drunkard and the idolater won't inherit the kingdom. I assume, well, there it is. That there's the, the the quote unquote clobber verse that proves that this is wrong. So, can you maybe? I mean, I'm not asking you to do a, a full, you know, in depth analysis here, but can you give us some big picture overviews of some of these so called clobber verses and how you kind of got to them not being maybe what they seem on the surface, specifically the Genesis story, of course, of creation. That, that's a big one I hear all the time of how God created people and for procreation. And I think in Romans uh, is the other big one that I hear cited. Um, I think that, let's start, with, let's start with Romans. Sure. I think that Paul had two things in mind when he did what he did in Romans 1. One was, yes, I do believe he was working from a theology of creation in which the only visible paradigm is male and female, right? Mm. Um, and I, I grant that. Mm. But he was also working from an understanding of homosexuality, not that they even called it that then, but an understanding of same-sex sex that um, was uh, degraded by the cultural practices of the Greco-Roman world. Hmm. Um, and he was writing to Rome. Um, and when I, when I studied a little more deeply on this, what was going on in Rome? Well, one thing was you had the Roman court filled with debauchery. Hmm. The Roman emperors and the people around them, what they did for fun um, was the most vile kinds of debauchery, including sex parties with other people's spouses and um, marauding to rape men and women, boys and girls, if they felt like it. Hmm. I think that for Paul, when he thought of same-sex activity, he associated it with paganism because he associated it with the Roman court hmm. and the Roman world, Greco-Roman world. And he associated it with exploitation and harm because it was associated with exploitation and harm in many cases. Hmm. Um, that included the absolute right of the male head of household in the Roman world to have sex with whoever he wanted in his household. Hmm. Uh, that included boy slaves or girl slaves, if you felt like it. And this was anal sex, uh, essentially rape, um, well, was rape with disastrous consequences for health and well-being of the people involved. Um, these were married men, but but the marriages were not enough. They had to, to spice it up with this kind of debauchery. Mm. So I think that's what Paul was thinking of. And there's plenty of evidence of that. Also, um, sexual subjugation and rape was associated with slavery. Um, like enslavement, if you captured people in war, what you did to them was unspeakable because you could. Mm. And there were slave traders. And by the way, one possible translation of the words, at least one of the words, I think it's in First Timothy, is not um, homosexual, but slave trader. Interesting. Um, and, and so the sexuality is associated with the exploitation. Mm. Okay, so, so what I say is, Paul 
needs to be read contextually. Um, he didn't know anything about same-sex orientation. What he did know about same-sex activity was awful. Um, but and he was operating from a paradigm, and that, that gets to the Genesis question, in which right. the way God set up the world is male and female for procreation. Um, and that, for me, to be honest, Tim, was the hardest one for me to get past. Mm. That's the most substantial objection. Because it, you know, because you have not only the Genesis story, but you also have the echoes in, in like Jesus saying, uh, when he's asked about divorce, you know, as it says in the beginning, God right. female, right? So, um, so yeah. And, but then, in working on that, I deal with this extensively and changing our mind. I think the only or the best move there is to say, but friends, in the world we actually live in we meet something like three to five percent of the people who are not wired that way they're just not hmm. um they are men who can only attract to other men and women who can only attract to other women um and if one looks around there are a lot of um anomalies in the world that as we actually have it that don't exactly correspond with the idealized picture we get in genesis one and two so I'm suggesting that figuring out how to uh, make sense of homosexuality in light of the Genesis story is not that different from figuring out how to make sense of um, the theory of evolution or an mm -hmm. old earth uh, or the fact that the earth revolves around the sun. It's a faith and science problem. Mm kind of a scripture and reality problem mm -hmm. um and and that it ought to be possible to read those stories and pick up other themes like you know how um the theme in genesis 2 is so powerful it is not good to be alone yep. it is not good for the man to be alone he needs a helper suitable for him mm. um well for a gay person what kind of helper is suitable what mm. kind of partner that fits if you accept the reality of gayness, right, of homosexuality, of same-sex orientation, in fact, right. um, then what kind of partner does such a person need? Um, they, need a, they need a helper suited for them. And you know about this, like when you see gay, like gay men try to marry women just because they're supposed to and how it always, almost always is a disaster, right? Mm, yep. Because it's not a, it's not a match. So themes of mutuality, covenant, interdependence, uh, fit, um, relationality, the way we're made for relationship, and even sexuality that most of us can't imagine a happy adult life if we don't have sexual expression, or at least many of us, you know? I'm one of them. I'm one of them too, you know? <laughs> so, so basically what I have done is to reread Genesis 1 and 2 in light of the reality of the phenomenon of homosexuality um, and the themes of how much we need partner a partner suitable for us. I would imagine that one of the criticisms you would get when you would say it to someone would be, well, the, now you're reading the Bible in lieu of culture. Because I hear that a lot. You know, I hear a lot, a lot from like, you know, reform camps and more conservative camps. Well, we can't let culture dictate how we read the Bible. Um, you know, what do you say to that? Um, 
I would say that I'm reading the Bible in light of concrete human lives as we actually encounter them. So it's not culture. It's not like I'm reading the New York Times and that's where I got this, right? Mm. It's my sister, mm. my friend Theron, who I could introduce you to, you know? Um, uh, the couple that, it, that is in my Sunday school class, Pat and Carolyn. Um, it's not culture. It's human, human persons with dignity and concreteness that cannot be denied. Mm. Um, to, to dismiss human experience like this is not something we generally do, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if we do, we end up with a really heartless theology. Um, take, um, take the divorce question. Um, it's interesting how even on the conservative reform side, most of those pastor types have come to understand that abuse is legitimate grounds for separation or divorce. Yeah. Okay. Show me the verse where that's there. Mm. It's not there. So how did it happen that abuse kind of got adopted into the grounds for legitimate divorce? It happened because we listened to people. Mm. And when women, especially usually women or children, come to us with their cigarette burns on their arms or their stories of a gun held to their head. Mm. And we say, or their bruises or broken arms. And we say, you know what? I'm going to have to take that seriously. Yeah. Is that listening to culture? No, that's encountering human beings. Mm. That's good. So you write this book, uh, what, 20, when did it come out? 2015? 2015. Okay. Fall of 14. 2014, and now you drop this bombshell, right, in the, in the evangelical Christian world, we'll say, and you say, hey, these are my views, here's my book. Um, I'm going to guess, because you've kind of hinted at this before, and I've been around long enough, that it wasn't probably well-received. That's my guess. I think about, um, I'm not sure if you remember when Rob Bell wrote that book, Love Wins, right. and John, John Piper tweets, farewell, Rob Bell. Um, and you're like, I had a oh. farewell, a lot of farewells to me. <laughs> I'm, yeah. I'm sure. What was, what was that? That had to be difficult on you, frankly. I mean, what was that like experiencing just, I'm imagining friends, maybe colleagues saying, sorry, dude, you're out. Like you cannot think about this this way. You're gone. Yeah, that is what happened. Um, now the good news is, um, unlike a lot of other people in this situation, I didn't lose my job and I didn't lose my church. That's because I was already at a more progressive school with academic freedom. Hmm. And my church was on this journey with me. And so, so it was destabilizing, but not as destabilizing and awful as if you lose your job and your church. And that happens to a lot of people, right? Yeah. Um, and it's interesting that a lot, of, a lot of people you can think of who have taken kind of edgy positions, they actually end up out on their own, like Rob Bell and Brian McLaren and stuff, right? I mean... Yep. You know, you end up having to be a religious entrepreneur selling your schools and, and books because that's all, you know, the institutions are, are lost to you, right? Right, totally. Um, for me, though, I didn't lose my institutions in that sense, but uh, I lost um, friends, my, my two best friends back in West Tennessee, one of whom has been restored to me. That's nice. That is nice. Um, uh, I lost speaking invitations. Um, awards, uh, article contracts, book contracts, and just the blogosphere lit up. Twitter was 
was less was somewhat less developed in viciousness than it is now, right? Mm. But it was still fairly well developed, you know. Um, 2014 Twitter is not 2020 Twitter, but um, but you know the the virality of viciousness is really was still pretty decent in 2014, right? Uh, yeah. Um, you know, Facebook too. So I, I really had to um, I had to hunker down and for days at a time, not not process anything, you know. I'm not looking at email. I'm not looking at Twitter. I'm not looking at Facebook. I'm not doing any of this. Um, and then, I, you know, I really had to give myself some time to ask this basic question. God, did I stray from you or did I do what you called me to do? Right. And I believe that I did what, I, what God called me to do. And I, I, I've never regretted it at that level. Mm. Um, but it was bruising. Um, but you know, one thing that was interesting, um, Tim was I heard from dozens and dozens of people, really hundreds who either said this book, this book gives me the only hope. This book is like a life raft and I was drowning out here. Mm. But you know, also interesting was I heard from like pastors and professors and stuff who said, you know, I agree with you, but if I say it, my whole world is going to blow up. Yeah. There's lots of people like that out there. Mm. So there's a lot of intimidation. Um, and even now, 2026 years later, there's a lot of people. If you went to a lot of churches and a lot of Christian universities, there are quiet dissenters everywhere. But they got to feed their families. So they feel like they can't they can't split it with the orthodoxy. Yeah, I mean, I I feel that because um, I'm you know obviously it doesn't matter now, but I'm I'm pretty selective with who I talk to about this issue. Um, and my views on it, truthfully, for sake of either having to, you know, not be at my church anymore, or just people thinking that, you know, I've gone off the rails. And um, I under, I, and that's not even like in the paid position, I'm just a volunteer. But even on that level, it still can be very intimidating to feel like, well, if I say this thing about this issue, it's going to just people are not going to hear me on it. Um, so I mean, kudos to you, because that's bold to write a book and, you know, really risk your reputation, your career on, on such a polarizing topic that i mean have you seen you think over the past five years are we trending in this direction of 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 shifting our theology on this or what do you think um i think like everything else it's polarized mm. you know on the left um and by left i mean i mean mainline protestant uh progressive catholic most of higher education um and many in the post-evangelical space LGBT inclusion is non-negotiable. It is just non-negotiable. I mean, imagine, imagine any um, Democratic politician running for a national office saying, I'm not okay with gays. I mean, it would never happen, right? Right. I mean, it just never happened. Um, and the same thing is true in many church settings um, on the left side of the spectrum. I mean, in academia, this is a non-negotiable uh, full inclusion without without hindrance of any type is like written into the uh, personnel policies and the stated values of much of higher education. Hmm. Um, so, so while you have one group absolutely committed, it seems like you have another group absolutely committed the other direction yeah. and uh, a, a group in the middle trying to survive. <laughs> trying to figure out what to do or trying not to be destroyed on this issue. And meanwhile, all of this is happening 
you might say, on the backs of LGBTQ people themselves who are just trying to live their lives and, and figure out where they can go to church and where they can be safe and, and you know, what they can think about themselves, you know? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I I feel th- I feel that a lot. I feel like there's often times where I'm kind of just trying to wrestle, and it seems like you either have to pick a side, and um, I don't know. It's it's a very polarizing issue that I think people are are I I I think at least in my circles, people are at least thinking through the issue more than just the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it kind of thinking, you know. And I think that really comes down to a lot of people, and myself included, because we've been exposed to you know. Um, great podcasts such as the Bible project, which I always mention on every episode, you know, they really have helped me understand that the Bible has to be read on its own terms. Like I can't, you know, as much as you can, you don't want to bring your Western individualist lens into a book that wasn't written that way and just start picking out verses and thinking that, 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 that you understand it. There's much more happening. And so just like how we do that with a lot of subjects, whether it's women in, in leadership, how we handle that issue. Um, I'm hoping that, that, that the church as a whole can at least admit we have to have a real conversation about it and not, and not just shut up this group of people. Yeah. And you know, there are stages in, in change and in every space in which people say, I want to at least have a real conversation to me, that's progress. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I think you can notice in a lot of the evangelical world is for a while, well, this, this was my experience. I was being invited into a lot of exploratory conversations like, Hey, we want to hear your voice. We're going to have a panel. You can have one voice, right? Yeah. But after a while, it seemed like those exploratory things began to dry up. Mm. It's like on the conservative side, there's a lot of not wanting to have the exploratory conversation because it's too dangerous or they think it's too settled. Mm. And on the more progressive side, it's also settled. Mm. And so why would you need to have an exploratory conversation? And, And so for the folks in the middle, I would just say, read, read my book, read other books. Um, listen to LGBT people themselves and don't let people shut down your exploration process. Yeah. I think that's really good. So last question before I let you go here, you know, I'm looking ahead. We're in 2020 now. It looks like we have, well, not looks like it's going to be Joe Biden. Who is the president? Obviously. (laughs) Sorry. That look at that. That rhetoric even reaches my mind. You have been Trumpified to that extent. (laughs) Oh man, he got to me. I got to get off his Twitter account. Um, Obviously it's Joe Biden who will be president. Um, I, I I would love your input on this, on this thought. I I, I don't see um, people in that, you know, evangelical Trumpism camp really kind of starting to think critically about this issue anytime soon because the voices that they listen to, like Newsmax TV or Sean Hannity or Tucker Carlson, that's who has their ear. You know, there's this idea of like, um, yes, maybe they'll say that they're Bible believing, but before that Bible lens is their political lens. And then they filter everything through that. They're Trump believing or Carlson believing. Yeah. Hannity believing is, right? is there any, what do you see the future of the evangelical movement? Because I got to be honest, like I know that last election of this recent one, it was like 76% of evangelicals, white ones still voted for Trump, which did not give me much hope. But the circles I'm in, there are a lot of people, my friends, people I talk to who are like, no, we got to rethink this evangelical identity, we have to make it almost like a new evangelical identity and forsake this. What do you see happening in the next decade or so? What, what's your opinion? Um, I think that Trump was dysfunctional enough and bad enough that 
the Trumpist thing in evangelicalism has had an impact um, in a couple different ways. I mean, you know, when you get the number that 76% of evangelicals said they voted, or white evangelicals said they voted for Trump. But I wonder how many people have left the evangelical label altogether because of this. Just as I think the Republican Party has shrunk a little bit because it has become associated with Trump, I think, and I know, evangelicalism has shrunk. So, so there's a lot of exiles who are going to be looking for a new kind of politics, right? Definitely. That, that's helpful. And there's some really good work to be done by scholars and church leaders to help to, to define again what a healthy Christian politics looks like. And, I, and it's not partisan. Um, but there are principles involved, and I deal with that in my in my book after evangelicalism, which you must read next. Um, so you know you got to pitch your book, right? A hundred percent, please do. So um, I think that the Trump cult per se is going to weaken with him out of office. Um, I think, but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think he's going to have 70 million Twitter followers a year from now. Hmm. Um, Maybe on Parlor though. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, he, yeah, where he can say whatever he wants, right? Exactly. But he still is going to have a following. I would say to my evangelical friends, he was never worthy of that kind of idolatry, that kind of loyalty. He never was. For the Republicans, they're going to struggle to get free of him, and to come. I mean, th we need a conservative political party in the United States. Um, but it needs to be led by people who are less deficient in every way than Donald Trump was. Mm. And so, I mean, if white evangelicals still find themselves voting 70% Republican because they like whatever, uh, whatever the overall posture, anti-abortion, a little more traditional, conservative, whatever, that's okay, um, I guess. But, but the Trumpism as cult thing mm. and the inability to separate truth from fiction and the going down the rabbit hole of conspiracy theories and stuff. Yes that's that's really different because that's a loss of contact with truth yeah and that's what what, what you initially noticed i mean i wrote this piece in religion news service um they called it the electoral crisis is really a moral crisis but really the focus of that piece was trump has been confusing our minds about the difference between truth and untruth for five years um uh the christian tradition says that god is truth Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, I think First John talks about living in truth. Truth is a very high moral value in Christianity. And truthfulness as a character quality is right at the heart of Christian character. Yeah. So if we're okay with, you know, with 25,000 lies from a president and a person who doesn't really seem to know the difference between truth and lies, mm -hmm. and we go down into the rabbit hole with that, we are sacrificing something really core. Yes. Um, we have to have access to reality and to be committed to truth. That's at the heart of Christian character. I'm calling for a recovery of Christian character with a focus on truth, living in truth and engaging the world truthfully. Great. Yeah, quote from your article I have here, you wrote um, in why Trump's electoral crisis is really a moral crisis. You said, Quote, a moment's reflection reminds us that no relationship, including in a society, can long survive without at least a roughly shared account of reality and a willingness to submit to it. And even when we disagree on what to do about the reality in front of us, to speak truthfully about it. I think that really sums it up because you're absolutely right. 
that's been the hardest part about Trumpism. It's not that he is conservative, that he has certain views. It's that he has really distorted uh, reality and truth and given rise to conspiracies that really have twisted things. And people, and unfortunately, many Christians um, have really dove in. You know, they, it's, it's been a full dive right into the mud, frankly. And uh, the result is... I hate to use such strong language, but it's pretty embarrassing to watch when yeah. I have good, good friends of mine who are sharing with me uh, QAnon conspiracies. And it's like, whoa, like, dude, I can't, I can't even argue with that. Like, I just, I give them a thumbs up now. Or, okay. Like, I can't, where do you even begin to un undo a QAnon conspiracy? You, you can't, you know, you just can't. Yeah. And, so. you know, there are reasons that, the, that we've gotten here. Partly, if you have a religious community that is kind of suspicious of elites and academics, pointy headed intellectuals, and, you know, so if, if the New York Times or Harvard Medical School says something and your initial response is, I'm going to disbelieve it on principle because it's them, right? You know, so that's part of it. But Trump has, has vastly accelerated it. Um, but you know what? He was doing conspiracy theory stuff like in the 80s. He's always, always been that guy. He should never have been elected to spread his toxin of, of uh, distorted uh, conspiracy thinking, but he's done that. Yep. And... Um, Conspiracy thinking can be very, very dangerous because untethered from reality, you can make any claim you want. And if those claims turn uh, towards finger pointing and scapegoating, there are people who can die because of conspiracy thinking. Yeah. And have in the past. And so I just beg Christians to come back into the light and deal with reality, like it or not. Yes, I agree. David, it was truly a pleasure having you on. Um, really amazing insights. We're going to put... Um, both those books, Changing Our Minds, and your new book um, in the show notes for people to be able to, be able to, be able to purchase. Um, if you want to, anything else you want to plug, you have a website, Instagram, yeah. Twitter. If you look over my shoulder here, I do a podcast called The Kingdom Ethics Podcast. Love it. Um, that's that. And I also have a website just updated, davidpgushy.com. Awesome. It was great having you on. Thank you so much. Uh, great to meet you. And thanks for the invitation. Take care, man. Absolutely. All right, guys, there it is. Another interview in the books now this one i mean in my opinion this is probably the most controversial guest we've had on but before we get into maybe some of the more controversial stuff i would like some thoughts here rob and or jordan the interview as a whole anything stick out to you what did you like etc rob you want to go first well i think he touched on one of your go-to points if you check out tim's facebook feed um <laughs> thank you <laughs> But it's, it's not something that we don't disagree with, right? So yes. um, Christianity's wholehearted acceptance and marriage, no pun intended for the rest of our conversation, to the Republican Party um, and just how, how that happened and why it happened, I think was interesting. He obviously knows a good bit of church history in that, um, in that regard or American history. Um, so I did, I did enjoy that part of it. And I don't think there's anything that stuck out there that wasn't immediately alarming. Like, I don't think we're going to sit here and have a debate on, yeah, we, we know Trump and, and the Christian and the evangelical right are kind of in bed together and we don't, it's inexplicable as to mm. why you identify with one, you immediately identify with the other one. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yep, I agree. Uh, I thought I was that part was great, and he's. I think he's pretty well spoken. He's obviously very educated. I mean, his his email signature 
he used like the chair of like maybe 10 different some kind of Christian ethics something in some form of academia. So his list is long and he's written in, or edited 20 books. And he also, I, I don't know if he, if he said this in the interview because uh, we're, we're, you know, we're responding to it a little bit later, but he wrote a book on um, how Christians treated the Jews and how the Holocaust kind of all worked out. So he's obviously very well versed in that kind of stuff. I thought that was very fascinating. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah. Jordan, do you got anything? Um. Yeah, in general, I feel like I agreed with a lot of stuff you said on um, evangelicalism and kind of the need to sort of reevaluate what we mean by that, um, both as like individuals and probably all together. Um, yeah, I don't, the political stuff, it's still for me is like, like I, I get the whole side of the, argument that you guys are saying and at the same time i keep coming back to like you know there's there's actually like really legitimately smart people out there who voted for trump or are republican for really good reasons too like i just think it's important that as we i don't know i don't feel like we're quite bashing those people (laughs) but um yes we talk a lot there's a difference between people who can make an educated argument for why they voted a certain way versus people who are just oh my pastor told me or hey this is yeah. god's only candidate that you could vote for um right, and right, i think right. we're seeing a lot more of that than maybe the educated voices of saying actually like, here's the reasons i did you might not agree and i i respect that however here's some reasons to at least consider so i mean there are i mean they're out there i don't know that Definitely. it's i don't know that it's the majority that's kind of the radical uh crazies yeah so why don't we hop into the elephant in the room obviously so you know dr david here he wrote a book uh i think it was 2014 yeah called changing our minds that kind of got him kicked out of the establishment and the book is it's uh an argument for gay affirming and full inclusion in the church for lgbtq people so i know you guys have thoughts on this obviously so whoever wants to go first, take it away. I'll go first. <laughs> he <Okay>. said, <laughs> not knowing what that would mean. Um, mm. Yeah, it's hard to, I guess it's hard to present all of my thoughts in a short and concise way <laughs> on this. I I mean, I'll just, I guess I'll just give you kind of like personally where I'm coming from on this sum is that I don't, I certainly hold a different view on this subject than Dr. Gushy does. Um, and I understand, I like, I get the, the initial part of that conversation from his side is this whole like, um, we have to look at the way the church has treated these people and we have to get to know these people. And it's, it can't be just an ostracization of them out, out of the church, because that's not what we want to do to anyone. You know, we don't want to um, put this wall up and be like, you can't be a part of this thing. It's only for people who are perfect. But then at the same time, it's like, I keep coming back to like, there's a, the Bible says a lot about 
maybe not a lot. Okay. There's a few places where it seems to be, at least to me, pretty clear that a homosexual relationship is not the way that God intended things to be. Mm. Um, and with that, I feel like it's important to call that what it is. And I almost feel like sometimes I want to have the conversation and maybe be open to like talking about things. But at the same time, it's like, I, I want to be able to stand firm on something that I believe mm. too. You know, I don't want to just be kind of stuck in this limbo of in between opinions on something. Um, and then I wrestle with the whole aspect of if I believe strongly that homosexuality is a sin, I can't say that to anyone, you know, mm. I feel like I, and, and he said something in there too about, um, uh, just how unloving a stance we've taken towards, um, right. LGBT people. Um, and I feel like that kind of includes people that have a similar opinion to me. And I, I feel like that's not really fair that I would be considered unloving for calling homosexuality a sin when that's what I see in the Bible. Um, yeah, that was kind of, I guess my first, my general thought. I mean, I had a couple specific things in response to some stuff he said, but yeah. Rob, Rob, do you want to? Um, yeah, like I'm going to, I'm going to struggle with you, Jordan, on, you know, concisely responding in a few minutes to, an hour yeah. long. I feel like I gave a real general. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, this is just Very kind of our, our, our overview response, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. We're not. Here, we can't spend an hour and a half here. I'm not going here through. to debate with a guy that I'm not actually talking to. Also, <laughs> right. exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, we really pigeonholed him. He didn't even have a response. <laughs> um, but yeah, Jordan, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm definitely in the same boat as you, and. There are certainly things that I feel like in these arguments, they get brought up as proof of one thing or another. So one of the, the go-tos in this regard is always, well, the church was wrong about slavery. And to mm -hmm. that, I would, I would say that's a revisionist view of church history, in my opinion. Yes, there were some Christians who... Um, look to the Bible to affirm their view of slavery, but even that, that was a gross misreading or misinterpretation of what was going on there. And that wasn't 2000 years of interpretation that now has been flipped upside down. That was more like, right. Cause I'll just interject real quick. I feel like the, the reference that he made earlier about the, uh, the verses about slavery and stuff in the Bible are not an endorsement for slavery. When Paul says slaves should obey their masters, it's not saying that slavery is good. <laughs> right. And, and to that point, I mean, we can go down, we can have a different podcast about slavery in the Bible, but sure. to then compare that to for 2000 years and beyond, because you go all the way back into the old Testament and so we'll, we'll say for 10,000 years, God's people have had the belief that homosexuality is a sin. 
we're now saying, you know what, for 10,000 years, we've got this wrong. And we've misinterpreted God's intention for humanity. And therefore, we need to change our minds. I think that comparing that to slavery, which was undermined by Paul, and you know, you can go listen to the Bible Project episode on that to see how Paul undermined the entire framework of slavery, even in a different ancient society that depended on it. Um, but that was one of the one of the sticking points with me was that for some reason that always gets brought in, and I think it's not an apple to apple comparison. Yeah. Okay. Jordan, anything else you want to add to this so far? Are we getting into more specifics or well, I just want to <laughs> do you, you want to get time. into more specifics? I mean, here's the thing, right? I kind of, you guys know this, our audience knows this now because the interview's out. You guys know I am personally wrestling through this topic. I am trying to understand mm -hmm. some of the new arguments I'm hearing that like ones that, that David presents among others. However, I also understand and have listened to several um, very uh, conservative, you know, arguments from like, the likes of James White, Dr. James White, who obviously you don't get much more conservative than Dr. James White, in my opinion, um, or Sean McDowell that you sent me, Rob. So I'm certainly not trying to say that I am, um, you know, okay, I, I'm landing here. However, I'm also not going to lie and say, oh, yeah, like to me, like, of course, like, how can they not see it? I, I, I understand some of these arguments and they, they have, um, you know, pricked my interest, so to speak. So I want to give you guys plenty of time, though, because I interviewed David and I kind of said mm -hmm. that in their interview. <laughs> I don't want to take over, you know, with my perspective when David kind of already presented some of the things for us to think about. Yeah, no, I guess maybe my question, I mean, I don't want to get into the specifics of it again. Like I said, I don't want to, <laughs> I don't want to try and debate somebody who's not here. That's not what this is for, but I guess maybe what I'd just kind of add to this and something to think about or maybe respond to if you want to, but it's kind of like where you guys talked about like having this conversation and how, why it's good to have this conversation. And I guess I'm asking like, where does that conversation lead or where does it end? Well, um, I mean, this is the million dollar question, right? And um, all I can do is bring up some of the things that I'm thinking about that maybe I haven't landed on, but, and I know this will be different that for you, Rob, because I know that you hold to um, uh, more literal a literal reading of Paul when it comes to women in, in leadership, but a lot of churches, a lot of people <laughs> obviously don't have that view, especially nowadays. Um, and so I say that because I don't really know. Um, I just know that there are, I'll put it this way, I think that there are many people, including guys like David, who genuinely are trying to be faithful to the scriptures and also trying to be, to be faithful of this, of this idea of interpreting them accurately and well. Um, and, you know, I understand some of David's points, right? Like I understand his, his, what he, what his arguments are that he's making now, if they're right or not is one thing, but I at least understand the concept, especially with um, taking some of those verses, not the ones about creation order. That's like a different category, but some of the verses that mention homosexuality and David and others saying, well, what does Paul have in mind when he thinks homosexual What's been the interpretation of it? And there's a lot of debate over that. Preston Sprinkle has done a good job of this. Um, but I, I see that same argument with other things. Um, I see it with women in the church, right? There's a lot of good pastors that we would never 
I would never split over and call them um, heretical, but they would say, well, when Paul says women should be silent, he's talking to a specific audience. You know, it's not what you think it is. Like there's a thing happening that, that really applies only to this culture. So I can understand how someone can take that argument and say, well, you know, what is happening in, in Paul's culture when he has the term homosexuality in mind? Is it two people, you know, monogamously in a relationship? Is it this man boy thing? So I understand what they're saying, and it, it does make me think, huh, well, I've never heard of that before, but it's worth at least me looking into because I use that same, that same um, formula for other interpretation of Scripture that many people in the Christian tradition affirm and have no problem doing so. Does that yeah, make sense? It does. I think it's hard sometimes to like take two different issues and make like a one-to-one comparison between them two because I do think that Paul addresses some things differently than he addresses other things. I think some things he addresses in a more practical way that's like an instruction to a church. And I think in, in those kinds of situations, it makes a lot more sense to look at the specific culture and the specific um, people that he was talking to when he said that. But just to use an example that you guys talked about earlier in the Romans 1 um, scripture, mm-hmm. Paul's whole context of that statement is like, all of humanity from the beginning of time, like this is what they were doing. And, you know, he's, he's kind of makes these statements um, about the nature of God and, and how that becomes who God is becomes clear to all creation kind of thing. And then he says, and then they rebelled against him. So he gave them over to these things. And then he lists that. And that's where he talks about um, exchanging natural relations with a woman for unnatural relations. Um, so to me in that kind of context like that's not just a real specific practical instruction to a church in rome (laughs) you know that sounds to me a lot more like the nature of the way things are supposed to be Mm. in our world sure um yeah that's my response to that i guess back like to what i was saying before about the conversation and where it goes is it's i feel like is it are people that hold um David's opinion going to be okay with having a conversation and and a lot of people ending up on the other side of it, you know, like, yeah, we're having a conversation, but when we're end done with this conversation and maybe as a society, we're never going to be done with it or as a church, we're not going to be done with it. But I mean, like when, as a person, if I wrestle through something like you're talking about, Tim, but I come out the other side of it and I say, okay, this is my position. I believe homosexuality. The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin. Um, and therefore the people that are in the church that are practicing that and affirming that and saying that that's okay. I'm not okay with them being in leadership. I'm not okay with them. Um, you know, with us, not that we, again, not that we ostracize and cut those people off, but, the Bible has certain things that it says about people that are living in sin and refusing to repent of that. And so if just following that logic through, if I come to the conclusion that homosexuality is a sin, and then that's what this means for these people, is that okay? You know, or am I now unloving and, you know, whatever to the, all of those people? I mean, here's what I would say personally i think that my i think the for me at least the bigger concern is that can people who hold the view that david has or other people have of this issue 
not be kicked out of, a, of the entire like evangelical movement because they hold this view. Because that's what happened to David, right? He writes this book and he's like, events canceled, I'm kicked out. And that's it. Like I'm, I'm done. It was a farewell Rob Bell moment. That's the example that we use. So well, I think I'm it's different when, when he's just asking a question versus he's saying, this is how it is. Well, I know, but that's right? the point though. Is like, let's go back to that women in leadership idea. The church is still very split over it. Me, Rob and I disagree over it, but we would never not fellowship over us having these different views. I've been to his church. He's been, I think, at some form of, of a church that, that believes in that. But we don't say, well, I'm sorry, you're out or I'm out. We are. We understand that, that, that we can hold competing views on this subject and still see that we're still centered on Christ and what he's doing. So that's what I'm asking is like, do you think that we'll ever get to a point where a guy like David and a guy like, you know, Rob or you or even me at this point can have these views? We can still say we can still we can still say, yes, you're a brother. We disagree vehemently. But but we can still call each other family. That's the question I'm wondering. And yeah, because we disagree on so much in the church. I mean, welcome to the Christian faith, you know. Uh, but I think where the difference comes in is this is explicitly stated as one of the sins where Paul says, "As such were some of you, but you have been washed." And what, like you know, David's view would would hold is that it's not sinful and it should be welcomed in the church where the viewpoint that Jordan or myself would hold would be, this is one of those sins that is excommunicable from the local church, not the universal church. You can't be excommunicated out of the you know, universal body of Christ, but this is one of the issues that Paul brings up uh, along with others in, you know, first Corinthians five of, sexuality outside of the bound of a God-instituted covenant of marriage. And this is where, you know, like you brought up before, whenever I see an, a thing that's being described that goes back to creation, you know, again, I'll bring up the Bible project. They're great at saying Genesis 1-2 are laying the framework for the rest of the story. And so if one of the biblical writers like Paul or Jesus himself goes back to the framework, wouldn't that be clarity enough for us to say, you know what, they went to the framework where we're getting the basis of the human design, human's intention, and what God purposed for humanity. Isn't that enough then to carry that through whatever culture decides for the day? Well, two things on that, I think. Number one, with the sexual immorality thing, yeah, I agree, but we have to apply it consistently, right? Like, so we know that the majority of men in the church are probably watching pornography. Like, we know that. We, we have the data that says probably more than half of the people in your church are looking at it. Or there are a lot of people who are serving who are probably having premarital sex. So, you know, my point is, and I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of like, okay, so we just allow it. That's the point. But the point is that it does seem like we really are able to easily point out, well, this sexual sin is definitely, as you said, excommunicable but you know these other sins that we're not going to ask people about that maybe are happening like well like if they if they do it's a struggle we'll work with them you know like even though they might not stop they could be lying for all we know around this issue i just say it because I, if there's one thing i hope that we do agree on and i think that we do it's that how the church has treated this sub this you know subset of people that are still made in god's image despite of 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 their sexual orientation 
um, are at least worthy of at least, you know, being treated as such right now. I understand when it comes to church leadership and ministry, it gets dicey. I get all that. I'm not arguing that, but I hope we can agree that, that the church as a whole has really made that subset of people like feel very icky, I think, based on this idea. Um, and honestly, like, and I, I don't want to go down this path too far, but all I can tell you is personally, when you are talking to someone in person in front of you and they're telling you their story of how they tried to pray the gay away for 10, 20, 30 years, went to conversion therapy, went to all these different you know clinics, tried to go, go straight. And like, they just couldn't, no matter how hard they tried and begged God, begged him for, for years to take it away. It just did not happen. And they were suicidal and depressed. And now they're married to their spouse of the same sex in a monogamous relationship and they're thriving. I don't know what to do with that. Okay. I'm not saying that, well, there's your proof that should overwrite the Bible. I'm just saying what the Bible is, is maybe saying, at least, at least as far as how we read it and what I'm seeing in reality are at odds with each other. That's what I'm trying to say. Even the things like, like the Exodus project, it was the biggest, you know, um, gay conversion therapy for Christian, uh, Christian, you know, program. It shut down and the president apologized to those people saying, I'm sorry. So all I'm trying to say is that whether we like it or not, the experience from what people are telling us who are of that orientation, something is, is at odds with each other. And I'm really torn because I'm not here to tell people, well, listen, I know that you're telling me this, but the Bible is clear. Like you were not born that way. I don't know what to do with that. I'm just being honest, you know, like it's a weird rub for me guys. It really is. I just, I don't know how to handle it right now. That's why I'm wrestling with this. Well, it would be the same thing as if, you know, you, if, you know, there was a husband who was abusive to his spouse and well, I was just born an angry, abusive, physically violent person. We wouldn't say, well, your experience that, that brings you joy to get that and to do that to your wife. So, you know, as long as your experience is okay, then you know, that, that works out for the better. And yeah, you can make the argument. It's not apples, apples. I understand that. Mm. Um, but that's a sin that the Bible calls out that needs to be turned away from. And it's not something, you know, all of our sin is not something that once you're a Christian, God takes away your sinful desires. We still have our sinful flesh. I think both you and <laughs> Tim and Jordan understand that our sinful desire is still there. Um, maybe I'm alone in that. You're like, I don't ever want to sin. <laughs> um, but that that's kind of where the rub is for me is, okay, but is that what humanity is built for? Is that the best version of humanity? And Christian or non-Christian, we should be the, the most loving thing, in my opinion, is to encourage uh, humanity to live out the intention that their creator gave to them. And doing anything less than that would be a disservice to them. And Tim, I 100% I agree that like many other things in the church, we haven't done a good job reaching out and loving the, this, the minority group or the oppressed group. So I think that is something that we can agree on has to change and needs to change because the rhetoric is bad, but I don't think experience should dictate theology. Yeah, I understand. I understand. That's good. That's kind of where I came with that too. Is like I, I get what you're saying, Tim. Like the the disconnect between what you're seeing and and what you 
you, the Bible, you know, seems to be saying or, or what some people interpret it at least. Um, but I feel like for me, it's like no question whatsoever. I have to start with what the Bible says. And yes, I get everything we've talked about. We've been talking about forever of, you know, the way you interpret scripture. Um, but scripture is not uninterpretable, <laughs> you know, right. like we can interpret it. Um, and I guess, yeah, no, we don't always get things right. Um, but I have to come to a conclusion for myself in what I believe on something. And I have to operate in that then going forward. And that's where it becomes hard because it's like, I do want to love people, you know, I want to show love to these people and I don't want to be someone who belittles who they are, excuse me, sorry, or their identity. Um, What I would say, and I, this is, I mean, this probably would come across completely wrong to some people is that I don't think that's, really who they are, (laughs) you know, and they would probably vehemently disagree with me on that. Um, and I get that, but that's just tough to, um, come at it from that direction of like what I see in scripture and also wanting to show love, but not feeling like I can, I can't show love. Like people aren't going to accept it based on my premise, you know, based on what I see in scripture and want to show to them, like, it's like, I, I can't, I have to first accept that what they do and their life is, is all okay. I have to be affirming before I can be loving. And that's where I I struggle Mm. because I want to love without affirming the thing in their life that I see in scripture that tells me is not okay. Hmm. Yeah, like we don't have this issue with heterosexual sex outside of marriage. We can we can love people that are having premarital sex without affirming. So why does it change when it goes homosexual? I think because because if if a if a couple walks into our church that's dating and they are living together, no one looks at them different. No one thinks about it really. They think, okay, it's not really, you know, it's it's not right, but it's you know, it's okay. There's still, you know, there's still people, still got a child. They still need to be loved really well. And uh, you know, usually they're welcome in the church, and usually you know, people reach out, and it's not a big deal. But if a gay couple walks in, I think a lot of I can't speak for every church, but I think a lot of people in that church are not going to have the same view as the heterosexual couple that's living together without being married even though it's just, it's the same idea of a, of a sexual sin outside of the confines of a heterosexual union or a covenant, we'll say. Yeah. And I think that's the difference is that I hear what you are all saying. What I'm saying is that the church can't even get them in the door without giving them weird looks or thinking, wow, abomination. But we don't think about that with any other sexual sin. We watch music videos where girls are in bikinis, you know, like, like we, we, we affirm a very promiscuous sexual culture in the movies that we watch and the stuff we talk about as no problem. You know, we don't think about the greedy as being people who, when they walk into church as abominations or, or the people who struggle with alcohol. So I, I agree with you. I, well, I hear what you are both saying and I, I don't think that you personally would do this, but I think that it's very evident that if a gay person or couple or, or a gay couple with children walks in, that's a major problem. 
So there's still a, um, a wiring in our brains of this sin is definitely a bad thing that we can never affirm. But the other stuff when with other people and their sin, like culturally, it's just kind of what we're in. So we don't really have eyes to see it as such an extreme level of, oh my gosh, how could you, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's, that's the rub. So um, well, I think there's things that we need to change about how we react to both of those, you know? I don't think it's so much about changing one to be more like the other so much as it, as it is to just changing both. Like, I don't think we're reacting to either of those situations. Well, <laughs> the way that you describe them. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, for sure. Any final thoughts guys you have on, on this? And obviously we're just scratching the surface, but <clears throat> yeah. it'd be times to have some, some final thoughts. I feel unqualified <laughs> to, to comment further. Well, that, that's no, it's just our, like our podcast yeah. is. <laughs> it yeah. should be called yeah. the Unqualified <laughs> Christian Podcast. No, we should call it the Unqualified Baboonery. Because <laughs> we're a bunch of buffoons. Malarkery. Um, any final thoughts, Rob? Um, no, I think, but and I think it gets to the heart of what we've discussed on what the local church should be too. And mm. if we were more like a tight knit body, like was Paul was writing to, I think some of the issues that you were bringing up to him wouldn't be issues because you would know who's sitting across from you and would know about the sin in their life because they were that close. They were in each other's lives. And right. Um, so it, it wouldn't be as accepted. It's not a what a pastor getting up and giving a sermon to 10,000 people and there's no accountability. It was much different than that. The model that Paul was writing to. Yeah. Here's my final thought and then we'll close up. So everyone, thanks so much for tuning in. My thought is this, regardless of someone being straight or gay, whatever does not change that they're made in the image of God and should be treated as such. I think that we um, as Christ followers and Jesus people, are obligated to have compassion on people. That's what Jesus did. And in my, this is my opinion. I'm not speaking for the podcast. Um, I think that part of the reason why we have this fear of like loving that community or even accepting them um, is that we're afraid that like, like if we do, we're inviting, like we're, we're, we're going to lose our salvation or like something is, you know, like, well, we're, we're, I don't know, but this idea of like, you know, we're going to be in danger of hell by, by loving people too much. So my thought is just that in my view, you really can't be too empathetic or too kind to someone. You really can't overdo it in that regards. And um, I hope that as Christ followers, and I know this is true for us, uh, the guys recording this, but we are obligated to always study the scriptures, to listen to the best scholarly work of how to interpret the scriptures. And I think that it is reasonable to say that while the scriptures do not change. Certainly our cultural lenses do. Um, that's pretty obvious throughout the histories. And we owe it to ourselves to do good study on this, to really know why we believe what we believe. So I will leave it at that. There is, there are some good debates out there that you can see. Um, Sean McDowell has a great debate on this issue. Um, obviously you can read um, David's book that, that he wrote, Changing Our Mind for his uh, full perspective on this. But I definitely think that at a minimum, Christians should know the arguments both for and against to better understand them. So wherever you land, you can better defend or better understand the, the opposition. That's always good to do. And my hope is that even with people who have different views on this, that we can still be family. So that's my ending thought. Cool. I, I agree. Great. <laughs>
<laughs> guys thank you for tuning in to this week's episode it was a doozy and thank you for listening if you have any thoughts uh listen you can shoot us um an email podcast at coffee theology and jesus.com we have an instagram account at ctj podcast we're always on there and by we i mean me so you can always <laughs> um, shoot us a message tell us your thoughts on this tell us where you're struggling um, this is supposed to be an open dialogue. And finally, if you can give us a rating on iTunes um, or Spotify, that would be huge. It really helps us. So we will talk to you guys next time. Thanks for checking out the Coffee Theology in Jesus podcast. You can always drop us a line on Facebook or through our email, podcast at coffeetheologyandjesus.com, as we love to hear from our listeners. Until next time, drink coffee, discuss theology, and love Jesus.